welcome back and thanks for tuning in to Oil & Gas Onshore, where I am on a relentless pursuit to bring value, unity, and information to the energy industry one conversation at a time. So sit back, relax, and remember that even this very device you're listening on requires some form of hydrocarbon. This episode is brought to you by our new sponsor for the Oil & Gas Onshore podcast. A big shout out to Technip FMC, a company who truly represents the future of the oil and gas industry. Hey everyone, look, not only do you get awesome weekly content by listening, now you've got a chance to win some serious swag brought to you by Technip FMC. Each week, one lucky listener will win a bundle of gear, which includes everything I'm about to list. Seriously, everything. An audio duffel bag, a Yeti tumbler, an executive power bank power charger, a Columbia neck gator, and a set of Ace Pods 2.0, which are the true wireless Bluetooth earbuds. All you got to do is click the link in the show notes and enter your information to win. Simple. Now go get your swag on. Welcome to this week's episode. I'm here at the Canon with Patrick Nash, independent consultant at Stanford Energy Consulting. Patrick, after a long drive in from San Antonio, how you doing, buddy? Good. Not tired yet. Hopefully I'll get tired after the podcast. Yeah. Okay. But then you're driving back, right? Yeah. Drove in and then I'm going to drive back. It's it's not a big deal. What a stud. No, like that's actually, I had some folks from Chicago that were going to come down here just to podcast with me. And I was like, trust me, you're not going on Joe Rogan. I'm not worth it. But the fact that you drove in, I actually really do appreciate that. And hopefully I can make this just as good for you as it's going to be for me. So what time did you get up this morning? I think I got out of bed at like four. I was planning on leaving at 530. We were talking before the podcast, like it's really no big deal. I lived in Midland for six years. And so that's really just like a drive from Midland to to Pecos or whatever. So I used to do that all the time. You know, that's so true. It's funny because folks in, in the oil field, and I've never been in any other industry. I imagine there's other industries that drive a lot, but yeah, we get a lot of windshield time. And so like, tell me when you were driving here, was it music, podcasts, audiobooks? Like what, what do you spend your time doing? Or do you Uh, just meditate the whole time? No, no. It's pretty much either podcasts or audiobooks only. Like four or five years ago for like a new year's resolution, I quit listening to sports talk radio, like completely. Cause that's like all I would do. And then I decided it wasn't a very productive use of, you know, my windshield time. And so then I just completely (laughs) switched to like audiobooks and podcasts and I just like never went back and now it's like I, the only time I actually like will listen to music is when I'm on like a road trip with my wife or something there you go it's interesting because most people will try and instead of you know eliminating sports talk they'll eliminate the news so it's interesting that you were like no more sports why is that were you just getting too into it and you just stressing you out or what? yeah well it was just you know how the sports talk it's where they just manufacture like debates about the same crap like LeBron James, Michael Jordan, blah, 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 blah. Hot takes this, hot takes that. The news, like, I don't really listen to, like, too much of, like, everyday news either. Yeah. So it's it's mostly, you know, economics type stuff. Like, a lot of the, um, you know, obviously really into Bitcoin and things like that. So yeah. it's a lot of the, the Bitcoin podcasts that I'll listen to. Energy podcasts, now that those are a thing over the next couple, you know, last couple of years, like like yours and some others. So Yeah. No, that stuff has been blowing up. And it's... It's interesting with regards to podcasts. You know, I was talking to you before. That's how I got into it because I love podcasts. And I think it's such a fascinating platform. And I used to listen to music, you know, diehard. And then now, same thing. It's energy-focused podcasts, health and fitness. Because that's something I'm interested in. And then something that I've recently kind of dove into is like finance and economics. Macro Voices is a huge one that's sometimes, you know, for folks that aren't don't have the background, it's a little tough. But they've got the, the transcripts online that you can kind of read through if there's something that you you know, listen to and you're like, Hey, that didn't make sense. But yeah, it's crazy. Cause I'm such a sponge for information. I find now, like I was saying, I've, I've like, there's so many podcasts out there. So at first, you know, I'd subscribe and I'd listen. I'm like, well, how can I absorb more? Oh, well there's two X. Mm-hmm. So then I'd crank it to two X. And so my wife thinks it's so funny. Every time she comes to my vehicle, it's like, and she's like, what, why don't you just listen to it on one X? I'm like, because I need to listen to like six hours. I need to cram that into three I usually don't have the time. See, I can't do the 2X thing. You can. You just haven't adapted. Or that's true. I won't. (laughs) I I won't absorb it as well, I feel like, if if I listen to it faster. Yeah. And so I just, I mean, I don't know. Yeah. And hey, it works. Whatever works for you is totally cool. It's just I found that when I listen to it now, because my wife finally started getting into podcasting and now she listens to real estate podcasting because that's the line of business that she's in. Bigger Pockets podcast is actually pretty interesting. I yeah, listened to that I've one. listened to that one. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. We were driving to Dallas the other weekend and she's like, oh, let's listen. You know, I'm like, okay, yeah, awesome. Let's listen to some podcasts because normally when we drive, it'd just be like straight music and we both enjoy the same music. So it's totally cool. 
but we're listening to podcasts and we're listening to one X. And so I'd like, when she didn't notice, I'd go to 1.2 X and then like slowly <laughs> incrementally increase the speed. And then finally I got to 1.5 and she was like, wait, are they talking really fast? She's like, did you speed it up? And then I was like, yes, but just give it, give it 20 minutes. And yeah. then after that, she didn't even notice. I'll, I'll, like, have to, yes. I'll have to try it. Yeah. <laughs> you have a podcast that you listen to to like sort of break it up like between news and things. Cause yeah. like, I listen to the, the rewatchables on the ringer network. So that's the, that's okay. the one where they just like talk about movies. So when I want to ah. have some time, that's like a little less productive. Yes. I'll listen to, to that. And it's also, I like it because this is going to sound a little weird, but like, no, it's good. This is what the, we're here for. The producers, the, the people that do it, they're a little more woke than I am. And so yeah. I have this belief that like, you need to listen, you need to like kind of spend time listening to people that you also maybe not, agree on everything with to i love get a hearing different that perspective so yes that's, you know i can spend some more time around the woke crowd yeah you know and, and it sounds funny but i think that a lot of what we do and, and this is sort of i guess the problem that i see in oil and gas is that we love preaching to the choir yeah. nobody loves oil and gas like oil and gas loves oil and gas right yeah. so it's like you know, let, let's go for lunch and talk about how we were anti-renewables and it's like okay well if you truly want to change the narrative why don't you invite people for lunch that have completely opposing views and then if you can provide enough good information to where at least maybe they might be curious about why oil and gas might be good and then completely the opposite you know what i mean like i have a good friend danny splestoster who's out of denver who spent his whole career and his whole entire life in wind energy mm -hmm. and we have some of the best conversations you know what i mean and and we're, we're both you know i'd like to say i'm educated but you know people may argue that but he is very educated very smart has worked all over the world in renewables. And so when we have a conversation, it's like, okay, let's look at this from a holistic perspective. He's pro natural gas. You know what I mean? He's yeah. not like, you guys are ruining the earth. He's like, no, we need you for this transition that we're all going through. And, and so it's cool to, to have those types of conversations. So like you said, but going back to your question, there's a few that I listen that are sort of like offbeat from the from the normal one again i'm in health and fitness so mind pump there's some dudes out of california i love their podcast i don't listen to the q a because a lot of it's very elementary fitness stuff so yeah. i listen to just the banter at the beginning and yeah they're out of like silicon valley and they're just they're a bunch of bros who train their whole lives and and now have a podcast and they're great and then another one's ben greenfield he's into like biohacking and so i kind of get to like keep my finger on the pulse of like all the like new greatest like whether it's like peptides or whether it's supplements yeah. or whether it's like these weird hacks. And nice. so like, I'll just, you know, kind of see what's going on in there. And then 1.37 PM, it's a Gary V podcast, but he's not on there. And, and they talk about like video games, sports, movies, and just like kind of like the woke stuff. Yeah. It kind of keeps me in tune with that. So those are the three that, and then Gary V I listen to almost every day. So anyway, those are the ones that outside of like business yeah. stuff. I just started listening to Animal Spirits podcast, which is... Oh. Someone told me about I, I don't that. know exactly what they do, but it's basically finance and modern finance. And they discuss all the, you know, I listen to like the their weekly like kind of, you know, roundtable news show that they do. And cool. You know, it's basically 75% you know, like what's going on this week in finance. And then the last 25% they like talk about Netflix and movies. And Perfect. Stuff, no, know, that's great. a great balance. The other one that I really like, and we'll move on. I promise everyone, we're not just podcasting to talk about <laughs> podcasting, but Robin Hood Snacks Daily. There's some guys out of Manhattan that do like a 15 minute clip on like like the, the news. They kind of give you a comical overview of the stock market yeah. and like who's moving markets, who's doing what, but, but they're younger and they have like a very good sense of humor. And so anyway, that's what also keeps my finger on the pulse of the stock market and what's happening there. But anyway, moving on. And before we actually keep going, I do need to mention some fascinating technology provided by our sponsor, TechNip FMC. Their new and integrated iComplete system is digitally enabled and delivers efficiency benefits by dramatically reducing components and connections while simultaneously providing real-time data to operators about the well-pad operations. TechNip FMC is continuing to push the limits in order to achieve full-frack automation. To discover more about the benefits of iComplete, click the link in the show notes or simply check them out on LinkedIn. I don't know if Brett listens to this, but a huge shout out to Brett Shell over at Coldboard Technologies. It looks like he just raised a bunch of capital and secured a deal there. And so it was all over social media. And so a big shout out to Coldboard Technologies. I know they're doing some cool stuff with the frack automation. So, and they're out of Canada. So of course I got to plug my boy, Brett. Anyway, so with regards to OGGN, I do want to mention too, we're, the monthly happy hours are here back in Houston. We're doing those. So please check them out on LinkedIn. You can either go on OGGN.com or again, check them out on LinkedIn, see when the next event's coming up. 
And we've got a ton of new podcasts that have been recently released and a bunch that are coming down the pipeline. We've got stuff covering everything from new technology, ESG, leadership, offshore. I mean, everything you can think of related to energy, there's a podcast for it. So huge shout out to OGGN and the crew. Anyway, Patrick, back to you. So where are you from? Are you from, you're not from San Antonio, are you? No. So I grew up in Dallas, moved from, you know, and then went to Texas A&M for undergrad. Wait, wait, wait. So you grew up in Dallas. You didn't just like get born and then go to, to college. So like talking about that, you grew up in Dallas, which part would you do growing up? What would you do for fun? Yeah. So grew up in the city of Dallas, went to Highland Park High School, was on the golf team. Ah, golfer. Yeah. Very cool. State champion golfer over here. Seriously? Well, yeah, I mean, I'm like, yeah, no, you are. I'm That's good. I'm making fun of myself. No, right <laughs> no we're, I'm going to go with that. Okay. So now I'm even more honored to have you on the show. Awesome. Yeah. Because <laughs> I'm an aspiring PGA Tour nice. golfer. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Are you close? <laughs> not, not even. Yeah. If I break 100 this week, I'll be pumped. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, you're, you, I mean, it's a lot of work, so. There you go. So yeah, I grew up in Dallas, was, you know, part of a, you know, was fortunate enough to grow up in, in Highland Park. My dad was a real estate developer, commercial real estate developer. He did pretty well until 2008 and then has had a rough time since, but then went to Texas A&M, studied industrial distribution, which is basically kind of like a mix of industrial engineering, supply chain management. Interesting. Um, so what made you pick that? You know, I went to A&M. I didn't really know what I wanted to study. I was like, well, it's a good engineering school, so do engineering. And then I did some engineering and decided like you know, partying was more fun than mm, um, yes, stop going to classes. <laughs> I wouldn't say I almost failed out, but I was like, had one semester where I did, my grades were really bad. And then I was like, I don't know what I want to do. And then sort of like industrial distribution is sort of like a mix of, again, like business and industrial engineering, which is sort of also like very applicable to, to you know, business analytics and things like that. So of course, so set it on that. It's in the engineering school. It's, you know, it, I'm not going to say like, it's definitely not as hard as say mechanical or industrial or petroleum, but you still take most of the like undergrad engineering classes. And I, you know, took up to like Cal three and statics and dynamics and things like that. Very cool. Did you play golf in college no, or sports no, or anything? No, 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 no. I was like, you know, wannabe frat bro. Yeah. You were, you wannabe or were you? A well, frat I, bro? Yeah, yeah. I guess I was <laughs> again making, yeah. I, you know, I was in a fraternity and did all the, you know, party and, you know, met my wife or you know, started dating my wife there. Yeah. So, okay. So again, coming from Canada, we don't have the whole frat thing. And so the, my only frame of reference for frat bro stuff, which I would have totally, if I would have went to school in the States, I would have jumped right on that wagon. So, so don't feel bad about you know pumping yourself up because of that. But what's it like? I mean, so you get to, to A&M and then like, how does that work? Like, what's the, it's like someone comes to you and say, do you want to be on our frat? Like, or do you like line up and it's like, you know, you, yeah, you got a cool hair. Come to our frat. Like, yeah. how does that work? Cool I have no hair. idea, but I see it on the movies. It looks so cool. And I'm always like to live through uh, people like you. I mean, it's just like any other kind of club. It's just something you sort of like decide that it's what you want to do. Okay. Uh, so you have to sign up or do they recruit? Or well, a little, work? yeah. I mean, like a little bit of, of both. You go through like a rush and then like they're trying to like get you to come party with them. And then they sort of basically give bids out and decide who they want. No way. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> It's like the you know an animal so house awesome. you know an animal house where they make everyone sit in the corner like yeah <laughs> yeah let's see yeah no that's great so when you do that there's like initiation right like all the rookies kind of like in sports like yeah they they do silly stuff to you and well I guess you don't have to necessarily say the worst memory because I'm sure it's probably not podcast friendly but what was your in hindsight, looking through that and going through that, like, what did you gain from it? What, what did you benefit and what did you value from it? Because I mean, like the brotherhood or like, like talk a little bit about the benefits of doing yeah, that. Yeah. I mean, so the, where people like the biggest criticism of fraternities I've, that, you know, people make a lot of times is that you're basically like paying for your friends. And I guess like to some degree, maybe that's true. Don't we pay for everything though? Yeah. I mean, that's a good point. <laughs> so like I've made some, some of my best and like longest lasting friendships in that, that I made in that first six, seven, eight months of, of college, which I mean, I can't say that would have happened any other way. And so that's the best yeah. thing that I got. And, you know, people that are, are some of my like best friends to this day. So no, that's really cool. And, and honestly, too, like kind of, you know, for people that end up fast forwarding and then getting into sort of graduate programs, which you're in now, and, and we can touch on that, which I think is really awesome. A lot of the benefits too, is, you know, you go, you pay a bunch of money for school and you come out of it with 
a bunch of debt. A network. Yeah. yeah, but yeah, exactly. The the key word there is network. And so like for me going through my program, the biggest thing is, you know, certainly there's some tools and some some resources now that I have access to that I wouldn't have had otherwise. Yeah. But the people that I've been able to connect with and then the alumni on top of that, to me, it, it's worth it. And, and, and again, everyone is in a different position, but I, I think that's cool. I went to a school in Canada. It was a technologist school. And, you know, you go in, you do your school and you leave. There's no frat stuff or, you know, like clubs or anything yeah. like that. And maybe there is like, maybe there's like a chess club or like a welding club or something. I don't know. I didn't pay attention, but yeah. it was more like you get in, you get out and you're done. Whereas like down here, it's so much more like community and this just like ecosystem. And then there's pride. And yeah. I mean, like, you know, everyone from AM has a ring. Like, I don't know if my school ever has a ring. Like, I doubt it. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it, I think it's really neat. And again, coming from another country, we, we kind of put that stuff on a pedestal. It's like, oh, that's so cool. So anyway, I appreciate you sharing that story. It's, it's again, selfishly for me, I think it's always interesting. But what made you go to AM to begin with? I mean, was there any reason or you just, you knew it was a good school? So you're like, I'll just go there. Well, yeah, I think it was the best school that I got. I mean, my dad was like, you can go out of state, but you're only getting, you know, he only getting this much money. He did the, back in the day, there was this thing called the Texas Tomorrow Fund, which it was in the, I guess the nineties. I don't know when they discontinued it, but if I'm going to explain it correctly, it was basically you could start buying your kid hours at college, essentially like today, you know, you would pay the price today in the future. And so, you know how like the price of education continues to skyrocket. Oh yeah. And so it was basically like, you know, it was just an incredible deal. So if you could afford to do it at the time, like everyone did, and then they eventually had to discontinue the program because it was, the state was losing money uh. basically. But yeah, I was fortunate enough to get about like 70, maybe 60, 70% of my school paid through for that. And then the rest I took out loans. Gotcha. Yeah. So that was only applicable if you went to an in-state school basically. So it was like, Makes well, sense. you can go to, it was like, I think I, apl- I applied to Texas Tech, Texas, Texas A&M, got like, I think waitlisted at Texas. I was not a very good student in, in high school. Frankly, I just like didn't care about school. I can relate. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I went to A&M and I mean, it's a, it's a fantastic school. So cool. No, I've heard nothing but good things, but we got a lot to talk about. So I want to dive into some yeah. more stuff here. So so how we, I guess, met or even how I got to know you is you started putting out some content on LinkedIn. You started getting some followers and you started talking about like things that were really interesting and sort of hot topics at the time, you know, power markets, Bitcoin, just energy markets in general. So I'm curious, how did you all of a sudden decide to say, I'm going to start putting stuff out on LinkedIn? Were you frustrated and you want to just like kind of share your perspective or like what kind of got you into putting content out? Yeah, no, I always wanted to. And it was one of those things where, you know, at first I was a little shy and I was talking to someone who does it a lot. Sarah Stogner, you know her? Yeah, from yeah, Midland, the yeah. lawyer. Yeah, 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 yeah I yeah, know yeah. Sarah. Yeah. yeah, so I was asking her one time, I was like, how do you do it? And she was like, well, I just don't really think about it. It's kind of, you know, you just, just have to it. start doing it. And then, so so I did, but then I was always afraid like my employer would get, you know, kind of mad at me if I was like, hey, why are you on here talking about Bitcoin? Like you need to be talking. I was in I was in the like OCTG pipe, steel pipe industry, oil and gas. And it was like, why aren't you talking about pipe? It's like, I don't really want to talk about pipe on LinkedIn. Like, yeah. And so I actually ended up, in January, I got like accepted a package, like the, the company I was with was kind of like force merged and they okay. did a layoff. So when I got let go, it was sort of like this release. It's like, oh, now I can like say whatever I want. Yeah. I mean, there's like, you know, I say stuff on LinkedIn. I try not to be, you know, too political or, you know, I try not to say dumb stuff. I'm sure some people think what I'm saying is dumb, but um, <laughs> I get it though. I know like I'm probably never going to get a job working at like Exxon or Accenture or, <laughs> but I don't really want to. Well, there's a lot of other companies. Yeah, no, I mean like that. Exactly. <laughs> I get what. Yeah. Yeah. It's been pretty, pretty amazing. Like you and, and lots of other folks, like I've met just going to like networking events in Houston who I had never met before. And they're like, Oh, like I know you, you're that guy. Like you talk about this stuff on LinkedIn. And I was like, Oh, that's really cool. Like I didn't, I never really realized that like that could happen. So. Yeah, no. And it's, and it's great. And I love it. And I started posting stuff on LinkedIn years ago and, and same thing. Like it was one of those where I, I don't know, I always enjoy just like, I like putting stuff out there that kind of like gets people either laughing or like, I like the entertainment value yeah. and certain, because there's so much information out there. Like I'm not an expert in any particular field. I know a little bit about a lot, so I'm not going to about to go on there and pretend like I'm an expert. Yeah. You know, I try and give my perspective, but yeah, in time it sort of developed into this thing and to where like, 
you know, I got to a point where I was confident enough in my, what I knew and who I knew and whatever else. I was like, I'm just going to say what I think. And if people like it, cool. If not, then whatever. And, and, and I can laugh at myself better than anyone else can laugh at me. So like, I don't care if I make a fool out of myself or not. And I think that's what a lot of people just have to get over the fear of judgment from others. And which it sounded like you did and finally getting, you know, the package, you're like, Oh, cool. I can say stuff. And, but that's the neat thing about LinkedIn now is I feel like it's the, the Facebook of 2011. Like you can get so much organic reach and it's not crowded. I mean, it's getting more crowded. There's a lot of noise, but you with a thousand followers can post on LinkedIn and like 10,000 people can view that post. Like you can't get that anywhere else, maybe TikTok right now, but it's it's fascinating the reach and the potential that you can have to spread a message, educate people, or, or just create conversation that otherwise like guys like you and I may have behind closed doors, but to have them out in the open, you know, DRW is a good example. He's yeah. like, you know, he's kind of like calling people out and it's like, I feel like it, there's platforms that you should be allowed to be able to do that. And with as long as it's within, you know, some frame of respect. But no, that's how, again, like I kind of you caught my attention. And I think the first post, I forget which one it was, but, you know, you're interested in power markets and, and that stuff. So so I'm curious, you know, for folks that aren't familiar with power markets, what are power markets and, and what's kind of something that's, that interests you right now in power markets? Yeah, so I probably got interested in, I would say, I've always been interested in in power and like electricity markets to a degree. Mm-hmm. But then I probably got into interested in Bitcoin first. And then hmm. so then as I got more and more Let's interested that. in that, I started to learn more and more about like ERCOT and all of the other like intricacies of the different power markets in the US and specifically like ERCOT. And so that's sort of how I, you know, ended up educating myself. And I'm, I'm still I'm by no means an expert in, in power markets. But I really enjoy learning about them. Okay, so let's back up and let's let's go in chronological order. So you're working, at what point did Bitcoin kind of cross your mind in terms of like, not necessarily posting about it, but when did you actually like start looking at Bitcoin and when did it start interesting you and why? Yeah, so there's a saying that like everyone who first gets into Bitcoin always feels like they're late. Um, <laughs> no kidding. And I was, a lot, it's not like I've been in it for very long. It was around, so in 2000, probably 18, I had a, a good job in the OCTG industry, but there were some things with that specific industry that were kind of like cyclically just sort of wrong and we can get into that or don't have to, but I started sort of like seeing the writing on the wall that eventually like things were going to need to happen in that industry to basically, it was going to need to like downsize significantly. Okay. And then I start, so I was also sort of interested in doing more other entrepreneurial type things. And this was at the time when like the whole water midstream side and oil and gas was blowing up, started getting in. I started doing a bunch of research on like recycling, like monetizing, recycling water, like ways to do that. You know, just, I just ended up like spending much of time on research and not doing anything. Then sort of like my, then like, you know, remember flaring was like a big deal. I mean, it still is, but it was like huge in 2019. And so then I was at this flare conference in Midland Shout out to, who's it? it's like the, it's like the FTC flaring technology conference, the group that there, it's like energy technology conference. That's the girls that do ETC or something. I was going to try to give them a plug, but yeah, blanking. That's okay. Anyway. So there was this guy at the conference talking about mining Bitcoin with flare gas. And this was in 2019, kind of before anyone in Texas was talking about this. And so that's when kind of like a light bulb went off my head and I was like, I'd always heard about Bitcoin. Like I had a, I first heard about it in Argentina or no, I probably first heard about it when I was in college because of the Silk Road stuff. Remember that? Like the drug website. (laughs) Yeah. So there was like a news article that came about that and all of us were like, whoa, what is this? But you know, never did anything. Then I I lived in Argentina after college for a year. Wait, you never said anything about this. Yeah. Okay. So when I graduated from school, I went to go work for a steel mill called Tenaris. Yeah. They're out of here in Houston. They have a great technical sales training program. I don't know if it's still the same, but at the time it was like you spend a year in Argentina and a year in the US doing training. So, I mean, you know, 23, not had a serious girlfriend, but wasn't married, like no kids, you know, to spend a year in Argentina as basically an expat where you get a, you get a salary down there and you keep your salary at home. I mean, it was like one of the best, probably the best experience I've ever had, if not you know, top five, right? Besides getting married and having kids and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. So I heard about it down there because we were in, we were kind of had like a cohort. It was sort of like a, it was almost like an MBA type style training program where, you know, we had kids from all over the the globe who were also worked for Tenaris. There, there was a, another guy from the US, a kid from Egypt, a kid from Indonesia, 
a guy from Ireland, a woman from Romania, another guy from Dubai, a couple other people from Argentina. I think that was everyone. And so the, of course, like, you know, Argentina has these strict like money controls down there. Like you basically can't send money out of the country. I don't know why anyone would want to send pace, Argentine pesos anywhere. They're like, you know, virtually worthless. Right. Yeah. And, you know, at the time they had like a fixed exchange rate. So that it was basically the government said like, okay, the exchange rate from us dollars to Argentine pesos is like eight to one. And it's like, well, no, it's actually like 10 to one. And so there was this like black market. <laughs> no, way. everybody calls it the blue market. And it was like, there's actually a, there was a website for the blue market. Yeah. It's like completely, it's just this bizarro world where like even the government knows that it's like, there's this black market for trading currencies going on, but there's nothing they do about it. Cause it's just like, it's so widespread. Wow. Yeah. I mean, Argentina faces out of the tube. So Argentina has a bunch of like, you know, currency problems anyway. And like that was, we can get back to this later, but like, there's a reason that Bitcoin has like a high degree of penetration per capita in countries like Argentina. So anyway, there we're down there, these, you know, stupid Americans, we have our bank accounts in Argentina and our bank accounts back home. And we're just spending the bank accounts in Argentina, like it's monopoly money, like we don't care, like, you know, spending it at the bar, spending it at the club. Yeah. (laughs) And but like the I remember the kid from Indonesia, great guy, like, he was trying to actually save the the Argentine peso money, because it was like, at the end of the uh, the program, like, if you had extra money in that bank account, it was just going to get trapped. Yeah. Like it was going to be closed out. Like you were just going to go home without the money because there was basically no way to, to take it out of the country. Yeah. And so the kid from Indonesia was trying to figure out like, well, how could I save it and actually, you know, take it back home where, you know, cause like Indonesia doesn't have a particularly strong currency either. And so one of the, at the time, one of the guys was like, well, like you should like put it into Bitcoin and then, send, you know, you, you could send it, you know, back home or, t- you know, you could, then you could take it out. And we were, and we were all like, huh. And then, you know, anyway, that was like the first time that actually I had, I remember thinking about it. Yeah. And then in 2017, you know, you had the big run up in price, but I still like, didn't really spend much time, you know, learning about it. And then, so then go, going back to like, that flaring conference, meeting this this guy in Midland who's from Midland who was like trying to do this. That's when I kind of said like, okay, I'm gonna actually like spend time learning about this stuff. That's kind of it's always been the kind of person I am. Like if I'm actually gonna you know invest in something or or do something, I sort of like go all in. Yeah, and then I've sort of like never looked back. Wow. To what level are you involved in Bitcoin now? Is it just something like as a hobby you look at, or have you like? you know, remortgaged your house to do Bitcoin or like what, tell us, I mean, without getting too granular. Yeah, no, I mean, basically, no. So after I took a layoff package in January, while looking for other work, I had start, you know, I started this company, Stanford Energy Consulting, where I basically educate or advise oil and gas companies on Bitcoin mining. And then I also basically help, I help Bitcoin miners find locations like cheap power locations to plug into. That could either be oil and gas or, you know, it could be in front of the meter, you know, like on grid type stuff. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, I basically made the decision that I I want to like dedicate my career to helping like build the, the Bitcoin network in any way that I can. And so with my background in energy, it sort of like led me to the whole like the whole mining side of Bitcoin, just because it's like, well, how can I leverage like my strengths to sort of like help this network? Of course. No, that's that's great. Your strengths, something you're interested in. Obviously, it's got a lot of momentum, a lot of potential. So that leads me to my next question. So right now, things have been kind of flat. It's been a little volatile. And I mean, what's your sort of outlook on where we're at now with Bitcoin? I don't know if we hit, we're back to 40 or... I don't even know what the price is, which makes it like, I I don't really pay attention to the prices anymore. That's okay. not, which is not like I used to trade and I like when, so going back to like right before COVID... I had kind of decided, this is when I was still working for the OCTG distributor, that I wanted to try and do something else in my career. Mm. And so th- I got this after meeting the guy at the the flaring conference and going down the rabbit hole a little bit, like pretty significantly, I decided to take this, like get this blockchain certificate from MIT. And so then I did that. And then out of that, I started this company called DeFi Rico. So this was before I had decided to dedicate myself to Bitcoin. DeFi Rico was like this minimal viable product that I tried to build to basically like provide micro loans to underbanked folks with stable coins. So if any, I don't know, listeners know what a stable coin is, is or is not, it's basically like a cryptographic token that's pegged to the value of the US dollar. And so I built that. It was a fun project, but it ended up sort of just like 
it's not really that scalable yet. And I was also just like more interested, became more interested in like Bitcoin specific stuff. Yeah. No, uh, that's perfect. So let's take it back to the flaring and the more the business, the Stanford consulting side yeah. of things. So what does that look like now? Because I've, I've heard, I mean, obviously there's there's skepticism around the whole, like depending on the price of gas and you actually need a lot of gas to be able to make this viable. What's your kind of take on, like what's your thesis behind why it makes sense and perhaps the potential it has here and how much runway it has? Because obviously if you said you're committed to it, you're very bullish on the whole concept. So yeah, so specific to like the flare gas mining stuff, that's really just like one aspect of, it's only one aspect of gas mining, which is only one aspect of, you know, like mining Bitcoin in general. Gotcha. So everyone here, are, you know, it's an oil and gas podcast. So like, I'm assuming we know what a flare is. Yeah. Right? yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, I know that you do, but the, the, yeah, uh, no, for the, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you have flares. So, you know, which the idea is you have stranded gas. It, be, it could be flare gas. It could be vented gas from like a tank battery or something, which is going to be a lot smaller, or you could have just a gas well that's completely stranded, Mm. like not hooked up to a pipeline for some reason or another, or uneconomic to hook it up to a pipeline, right? So those are basically like your, the three general categories of like mining Bitcoin with natural gas. Okay. The problem with flare gas is, is more the fact, you know, the, it's like the decline curves and things like that. And the gas isn't always as clean and sometimes you have to clean it up and if the gas isn't as clean then it's not as efficient to you know turn it into electricity but you can still do it and you know depending on the price of bitcoin you can you know get as you know basically be getting like above 15 dollars in mcf for your gas wow that's i mean obviously that's pretty considerable and so you said that's such a small piece of I guess the full puzzle, what else is interesting to you or what are you focusing on currently? So you also have the, like, you could theoretically do it off of, you know, like vent gas. It's just going to be a lot smaller scale, but you can still, you can still do it. It's just like how much, you know, how much Bitcoin are you actually mining and things like that. But, you know, if you're bullish on the price of Bitcoin, I mean, I guess in, in the gas is free. Like, I guess, why would you maybe like, why would you not? Yeah. Other than, you know, the, the cost of the ASICs and all, the, all of that. We can get into that, like, in a little bit if you want. And then, like, the, the stranded gas thing, I think, is where that's, like, the most interesting piece for me. Or, you know, you have potentially, like, a massive amount of wells out there that are stranded or, or not hooked up to a pipeline that you could, you know, basically convert to, you know, convert to money, like, on site. And, like, that's kind of, like, the beauty that that's, you know, one of the beauties of Bitcoin is that, like, it takes stranded forms of energy anywhere in the world and is able to convert that energy to money. And then it's like, whether you, whether you care about Bitcoin or not, like, why would you not do it? Cause then you can, you're basically monetizing that stranded energy. I mean, you can, you can transfer it from Bitcoin to cash. I mean, immediately if, if you desire to do that. Right. Yeah. So, and I kind of feel like I understand know the answer, but how do you take what you're doing in, how does that tie into the power markets? in the electricity side of things because i feel like that's there's more beyond you just wanting to mine bitcoin or or that you're interested in that like does that lead into other parts of the energy industry and specifically electricity for sure when i met the guy who was flare gas mining i'll give him a plug his name's roger muniz he's a great dude who does he work with he's with a company 21 million solutions oh Um, that's a lot yeah yeah (laughs) it's a play on the 21 million bitcoin Okay. You know, have you heard? Have you heard you know, there's only, what is that? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's only ever going to be 21 million Bitcoin that exist. It's, yes. You know, a, a hard stop. And anyway, so that's the that's where that comes from. Nice. Okay. I started doing some like business development work for him on the side, just like helping him try and get him in touch with people. He had a map of, he was basically looking for potential sites. Like my wife's a petroleum landman. So I got her to sort of like find out who, you know, were, were owners of potential sites and I would go reach out to them because like, you know, he was busy doing all sorts of different stuff. Yeah. And I had time on my hands. It was like middle of COVID oil field sales. Like you couldn't even go meet a customer yeah. if you wanted to, or, you know, it was like, <laughs> You're not, that there was, not that there was anything to meet about, right? It was like, everything was, everything was locked in. And so I, I told him, I was like, well, you're working on this, you know, I'll, I'm happy to, you know, help you out if it turns into something great. If not, I learned something. Yeah. And so he had actually pivoted away from the flare gas mining stuff because it's not quite as scalable as on-grid power market types of things. That's when I started to learn more about ERCOT and 
and you know demand response programs in ERCOT, controllable load resource programs and things like that. And so, you know, I don't know how you, I mean, it's again, I still don't consider myself an expert, even though I like, I have it on my LinkedIn profile. <laughs> I just know you are, but I love like reading about it and learning about it. And, and, and yeah, you know, it's arguably that you've done more research than your average person. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, it yeah. makes sense to listen. <laughs> yeah. So that's kind of how I ended up getting into that. And so like the more and more you end up learning about Bitcoin and Bitcoin mining and energy usage, I mean, it's like all ties in to power markets. And, you know, there's the classic criticism of Bitcoin is that it, you know, it's using all this energy, I was using go, all this electricity. Yeah. So um, talk about that. Like, what's what's the misconception and help educate people? Because for myself, you know, I've only read the headlines and dove into it a little bit. And it just seems awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Excited to do this. So cool. there's basically there's two aspects of the Bitcoin energy consumption, which I actually hate the term energy consumption because it's what the it's like the, you know, the first law of thermodynamics is like, you know, energy can be neither created nor destroyed. It's just transferred. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So you're really just, it's electricity that you're really like using, which is a form of energy, I guess. But yeah. So the first is the question of whether or not you think Bitcoin's energy or electricity footprint is, it's whether or not you think Bitcoin has any value at all. Like that's one conversation, because if you don't, then having a conversation about, you know, what the electricity footprint is or carbon footprint is, is kind of like meaningless, right? Because if you're not interested in Bitcoin or you don't own any Bitcoin or then you hear some disingenuous fact, like it uses more electricity than the country of Argentina, then you read that and you're like, well, it's a complete waste. I don't get this at all. And then the other side of the argument is, you know, is actually taking a look at the facts around the electricity, like usage, where it's being used and things like that. So let's start, I guess we could start with the first one, which is, you know, whether it's worth something or not. And it makes complete sense that most people from the first world don't like understand this to begin with, because we're fortunate enough to grow up in societies where, you know, money isn't, you know, constantly inflating in value or, you know, we're not dealing with currency crisis like every decade in Argentina. Mm-hmm. And there's a reason where folks from countries like Argentina and Venezuela and Nigeria and Afghanistan and Turkey and places like that, like come to grasp Bitcoin much more easily, even though they may not have the like the resources to dedicate like the same amount of time. It's much more easy for them to understand like, oh, you're telling me there's something that like, although it's volatile, you know, goes up consistently in value year over year. And it's a form of money that I can, you know, store my wealth in where my government can't, you know put controls on me and things like that. Right. So I don't think it's very fair when, you know, people like Warren Buffett, who I'm a big fan of, you know, call Bitcoin like rat poison squared. It's like, well, well, yeah, I mean, like, of course, Warren Buffett doesn't get like the point of Bitcoin, right? Like, but, you know, tell that to female activists in Nigeria who got their bank accounts, you know, banned by the government when they were, they were protesting like this brutal police force over there, you know, that like, you know, rapes women all the time and things like that. Like, and, you know, Jack Dorsey and other Bitcoiners were able to send them them Bitcoin to get them funds to, you know, continue, you know, and you have all sorts of other, you know, examples in Venezuela because, you know, because you you can't send money to Venezuela because it's like on the list of, you know, countries that we're not allowed to send money to, right? There was a point where like people from the US who were Venezuelans and they, if they had like, relatives back home, they were sending them Bitcoin or they were, you know, it was like, it had something to do with like cancer patients down there. And there's just like, there's countless stories. There's another story from back in the day about a a female entrepreneur in Afghanistan who was like, she started this business that was, you know, basically like with other females, but in Afghanistan, if you're a woman, you can't even have a bank account because of the, you know, terrible, you know, you're basically like a subhuman if you're a female in Afghanistan. So then like she started paying her employees in Bitcoin Uh, and this would have been like, I think this was like in 2012 or 2013. So they've obviously done like, you know, very well, but like, that's like the unfair part is like the, you know, is folks from the first world who are like, I mean, I'm not a billionaire or or a millionaire or whatever, but like there's, you know, billionaires like, you know, virtue signaling about the value of, of Bitcoin and things like that when, you know, there's people from other countries who do have value in it. Wow. Get value in that's, it. that's, man, I, I would have never thought of it like that. And, I, and I'm glad you brought that part up because I, I think for the most people here, like you said, it's it never really 
look outside just our immediate needs here to see the value in it in other places of the world. It reminds me a little bit of the ignorance where like, you know, there's so much initiative to like, you know, to reduce their carbon and you know, the environment and all this like climate catastrophe stuff that's going on. It's yeah. like, but there's so many countries or like throughout the rest of the world that they're not necessarily concerned about how much CO2 is being released due to, you know, burning some coal as they are like just wanting electricity so they, they can have some lights on for their kids to eat dinner at night. Yeah. You know we, what I mean? Yeah. Like, we, we, they want clean water. They want, you know, so it's, it, it, it just reminds burn, me a little bit burn dirty wood in their own home. And then, you know, get asthma from doing that over time. It's like the first world is trying to pull up the ladder, you know, behind us. It's like we, we, we used all of this, you know, quote unquote, dirty energy, which I don't even like, like, what does that even mean? Dirty energy, you know, yeah, like yeah, the, yeah. there's no, it's, it's almost like it's not black and white. Like yeah, right. everything is, is dirty to a degree when you actually like look at it under a microscope. Exactly. And if you go up the supply chain far enough exactly. with, with, with renewables, there's a lot of it's made with coal energy in China. Like yeah. that's and a pet peeve I have is when Americans you see this from Republicans and Democrats will say this like oh China you know they they're building what was it like two coal plants a week or was some something crazy right it was last year it's like well have you stopped to think about why they're doing that it's because they're making products and selling it to us yeah like you jackass yeah i know like, i know uh, it's like, like it's it's not they're not doing it just because like there's obviously they're trying to meet the demand yes set by us yes i know and they're doing that and like the only way to do that with cheap energy is with coal right now like, right and if not our iphones would cost three thousand dollars or, or probably, probably more yeah <laughs> yeah no kidding they're already almost there anyway but yeah that's such a good point and so i'm glad we're on the same page there because it's it's very interesting that's one piece of it and and there was other ones too now i mean I, we got caught up in that one which i think uh, was great though. yeah so then we were if we can just like agree on some to some point that like bitcoin some people in the world get some value from bitcoin and maybe like charlie munger and and warren buffett don't but you know there's lots of people in countries like venezuela and argentina and turkey that do per capita for sure so there's a we can move to like the next part of the debate which is on one hand, more fun, but on the other hand, like maybe one of like the worst debates ever, because I just no other industry get, has to have like a discussion except for maybe oil and gas. Like, why are you using so much electricity kind of kind of debate? So <laughs> there's a really good quote from a guy named Nick Carter. He's a venture capitalist in the space of Bitcoin. He says, imagine a 3D topographic map of the world with cheap energy hotspots being lower and expensive energy being higher. Imagine Bitcoin mining being akin to a glass of water poured over the surface, settling in the nooks and crannies and smoothing everything out. So the reason that people don't need to be worried about Bitcoin miners using electricity and, you know, us not being able to turn the lights on is because Bitcoin mining only takes place in areas where the electricity is incredibly cheap. And that's only happens in regions where you have an, you know, an abundant supply and a low demand. Right. Right. And so... That's like in places like around West Texas, where you have, you know, negative energy prices because you have a ton of wind power that's been built out, but like, it's not necessarily economic to get all of that power, like across the state all the right. times. Right. So, yeah, yeah. so there's, so there's a lot of times when you get negative prices in, in West Texas and you have like some Bitcoin miners starting to find places to plug in over there. That's also the same reason that before two months ago you had like China was the, you know, largest region for bitcoin miners like in the world by far had you heard that before did, i did you, may have read it but i i wouldn't yeah. have been able to long for a long time it was a criticism of bitcoin that china controlled air quotes bitcoin because you know they were either subsidizing bitcoin mines over there which was which is not true or was never true sure but anyway china it's not going to surprise anyone that much on this podcast to learn if you didn't already know that you know they regularly build out infrastructure just kind of like for the heck of it, you know, like in anticipation of like demand, like decades down the road. Right. So they mm. built out like tons of hydropower in certain parts of the country. They have okay. tons of like wind power in certain parts of the, a lot of it's in like the Western half of the country where, you know, the population densities are extremely low. Right. And so you just have like, you know, about power markets, right? Like wh what happens to the electricity if it has nowhere to go? just gets doesn't nothing yeah it's like just it's either run to the ground or the or you turn it off and yeah, so that's well right now we can't store yeah it. i mean that's it's 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 uneconomic so like that's what like the beauty of bitcoin is that you can plug it in 
anywhere in the world. It could be like, imagine a waterfall. I'm pulling like this, the CEO of Nidig said this, so I'm giving him credit, but like, imagine a waterfall in the middle of the Amazon rainforest. And there's this, there's a community there that like, they have, you know, they have nothing other than like whatever is around, you know, around them, some indigenous community, right? With Bitcoin, they can now, you know, generate electricity from that waterfall potentially and use it to mine Bitcoin and create value for the community. And all of a sudden they're like exporting, you know, value from that area. And so, you know, historically, if you think about like the world and where pop, you know, popular, you know, populations always centered around, you know, rivers and, and places like that, because it was like the easiest place to transport goods and things like that. And, you know, people didn't want to go live in, you know, a lot of time, you know, like energy is a lot of times like in, you know, for example, West Texas, you have this like beautiful, it's almost like a holy trinity of, of energy in West Texas. You have, you actually, it like, so wind only works in like one part of the country. And it's kind of like the, down the middle of the country mm-hmm. generally, and all the way down, all the way down to, to West Texas. Yeah. And you have the most densely populated areas of the country are actually on the coast. Yeah. Generally. And this is excluding offshore wind, which hasn't really been built right now. There's all sorts of other issues with that, but I don't want to get into that because I'm not an expert. Okay. <laughs> uh, and then you have at the same time, like solar power only works in, in one area of the country. And it's kind of like Southern California, Arizona, New Mexico, West Texas. And so you have like wind and solar sort of meeting up there on top of, you know, the largest oil and gas or, you know, at least oil asset. And there's lots of associated gas there too, that we have potentially in North America. And so it's just like, there's this abundant energy resources out out there, but you know, that's not where everyone chooses to live. Like we, we live in Houston, we live in San Antonio, we live in, we live in Dallas. Right. And so that's the beauty of Bitcoin is that it it can happen. It can monetize that energy anywhere in the world. Like, and then the other, the other side of that is like, the fact that Bitcoin miners are some of the only companies in the world that have basically no customers, hmm. if you think about it. They're mining for themselves. And so, like, let's put that in perspective. Like, these are basically, they're very akin to, like, from a, like, structural standpoint, like, they're pretty close to database companies or, like, you know, a cloud computing data companies or something like that. So, hmm. and they use a lot of electricity. So, like, let's just think about this. For example, when energy prices are going up in Texas and we're having like grid issues. I think right now it's been estimated that Bitcoin mining is, it's been growing this year. So it's, it's roughly 1%, I think of the Texas grid. So Bitcoin miners are able to turn off when energy prices get higher. So you can think of them as sort of like the most reliable form of base demand, right? So that their demand curve is like the exact opposite of what a residential users is, hmm. right? When it's hot, when it's getting hotter outside and you and I want to crank our ACs up, like that's what causes prices to go up, right? And so, and as it gets hotter and hotter or whatever, like we tend to like crank it, it's cranking it up more or colder, you know, like in February. And so that's like, that's basically like our demand is rising. Well, a Bitcoin miner like is going to, start to turn off when prices rise. So their curves are basically inversely related to yes. most consumers. Exactly. Electricity. Yeah, yeah, it's they're they're inversely they're completely it's completely inversely related. Hmm. And in Texas, so that we have this beautiful thing in ERCOT, it's called controllable load resource programs, which basically which existed before Bitcoin miners. Bitcoin miners are like the perfect controllable load resource because again because they have no customers they're able to turn off on a dime so like let's say they're using like i think texas is like 70 gigawatts ish ERCOT is it 70 77 or something oh, i'd have to look i'd be lying if i so let's just call it let's call it 70 gigawatts so one percent would be seven gigawatts right am i doing that math right i think so let's just go with that. divide by 10 or uh, hold on i don't think that's seven you said one percent <laughs> yeah Point seven, point seven, point seven. Point seven. <laughs> yeah, I was like, no, seven. That's not right. In a world with Excel and calculators, yeah. it's hard to do math in my head. I'm gonna, I yeah, it. I got up at four a.m., so I'm just gonna. Yeah, well, um, I didn't, and I still jacked it up, so it's okay. <laughs> okay, so yeah, so they can theoretically, Bitcoin miners can turn off and sell that electricity back to the grid, right, and allow us to consume it. So when we're having issues with power and ERCOT, like 
don't get mad at Bitcoin miners because Bitcoin miners are probably turning off to give you that power no back. Doubt. Gotcha. And no other entity is able to do that as consistently as a Bitcoin miner. So let's look, let's think about for a second, other types of industries or companies that use a ton of electricity. One of them is hospitals. I mean, obviously a hospital is not going to turn off at any point in time because people are going to die yeah. in the hospital. So yeah, that's not one. Let's think about like steel mills, aluminum smelting plants. So like the lar one of the largest Bitcoin mining facilities is in Rockdale, Texas. It's an old Alcoa plant, which is an, it basically was like an aluminum smelting facility. Aluminum smelting uses a ton of electricity. By the way, have you ever heard anyone complain about like the amount of electricity that it takes to make aluminum? No. You're not seeing it, no. No, but you see it all the time for Bitcoin. So it's like, <laughs> it's like unfair for Bitcoin, but the problem is like people use aluminum all the right, time. Right, I was going to say for the average person, they say, well, we don't need Bitcoin, but we need aluminum. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that, and that's kind of the, the root reason why, but like, it's not easy to turn a steel mill or an aluminum smelting plant, like off literally at the push of a button. Right. It takes like, it takes days, if not a week. I mean, if you, I used to work in a, for a steel manufacturer, like if you just hit a button and turn the whole place down, like you're going to wreck equipment, like it's probably a safety hazard, you know, you're going to be not filling orders. Like it's going to screw your, you know, you have customers, you have de demand, you have to meet things like that. Or, you know, think about like cloud computing companies, you know, like if, you know, Amazon Web Services has to turn off some, you know, some databases or something, if they decided to do that to sell power back to the grid, well, there's going to be a bunch of people pissed off because they can't look at their photos on Instagram and they can't, you know, yeah. their websites aren't working and things like that. So just to get back to it, like basically Bitcoin mining helps stabilize the grid in that way, because one of the reasons we have issues like in Texas with our grid, I break it down to two reasons. I mean, give me your thoughts. It's basically because we haven't done a good job investing in reliable forms of power, and we've been divesting forms of reliable power, and at the same time, our population has been growing. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that makes sense. The demand's going up, and we're not really able to keep up with it, nor have we really prepared ourselves for the changes. I feel like we've just been, especially down here, because we haven't had to set up the infrastructure to be able to withstand certain elements, I think that also plays into. So I think it's, I think it's a combination of factors, but I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. There's several forms of issues going on. We could talk, probably go down some other rabbit holes there, but for the most part, yeah, I think that's quite accurate to say that. So just to bring it back to full circle to Bitcoin, like in defense of, of Bitcoin mining, like and I don't want to like start criticizing wind and solar here on the podcast. Like, I think it's important to get all, we need all the energy that we need. I mean, every industry has criticisms and, you know, we probably could go down that path if we want, but let's just, for the sake of argument, you know, we have wind and solar over the past 20 years, we've been, you know, shutting down coal plants, building wind and solar, but you know, the wind doesn't always blow, the sun doesn't always shine. And so it, it tends to be, you know, it creates uh, high fluctuations in supply, Right. And like the power grid, like ERCOT is constantly tasked with maintaining like a frequency of 60 hertz, roughly. And you do that by balancing, by basically matching supply and demand at, at all times. Right. And so if you're removing base load and increasing load that, or, you know, base supply and increasing supply that tends to fluctuate a lot. You need something on the other end of the equation to balance it to out, sort yeah. of balance it out. And that's what Bitcoin mining does because it can turn off and it can turn on and off like on a dime. And so you're starting to see Bitcoin miners going and plug in nearby, if not directly to like wind farms. And so that's why like people you've you've heard you might see it on the internet, people will refer to Bitcoin or Bitcoin mining as a battery. I don't think that's like the best, I think that confuses people. So if you ever read that, it's just like, think of it as like the most reliable base form of demand that we have, because it can also be turned on and off automatically and allow whoever is generating that source to automatically generate it somewhere else. That's, yeah. that's the, ba that's the battery. Like, well, and I think that's, part. and obviously that's the biggest challenge that we've had with, with all these electricity issues, whether it's California and obviously in Texas now here, over in February. And I think that, that the way we're going now is only going to increase that type of the, the, the challenges and the issues that we had on the electricity grid. I mean, the grid itself needs to be upgraded. There's a lot of challenges there. 
the infrastructure is aging. So now obviously, yeah. you know what, we got the stimulus now or not stimulus, but the infrastructure bill. bill yeah. yeah. The infrastructure bill, there is a ton of money going into, which is funny because a lot of it's going into roads and bridges. Well, asphalt, you know, and all the stuff that is going in the energy input to actually make all this stuff come to fruition is going to be astronomical Mm -hmm. and you cannot get it from one or the other. It's got to be, it's got to be, you know, fossil fuels and nuclear and Bitcoin and this and that. And I like to hear that it's, and with Bitcoin and, and its ability to fill the gaps and when peak demand is up, you can then have an influx of, in my opinion, it'd be pretty clean energy, you know? And so like, again, when you start to connect the dots, and just understand the demand that we're going to see here. And it's only going to increase, especially as non-OECD countries, you know, from a global perspective, energy demand is not going to like peak here and go down. It's only going to continue to go up. And so I like hearing that. And it's definitely piqued my interest to dive into it a little more and hopefully the audience. And it's too bad because we're in over an hour and I want to respect your time. And I also, I do have some things going on. So I feel like this is like part one oh, of like yeah. maybe like a three part series. Whatever you want. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I can talk all day. I mean, I'm- no, this is this is good. And I should have booked it for longer. But Patrick, so I guess to wrap things up, if you could just maybe... If people are interested in learning more other than following you on LinkedIn, are there any credible resources that if people want to like kind of dive into this space that you'd recommend? Because there's a lot of it's information overload. You type in blockchain or Bitcoin on the Internet, you might as well, you know, get ready to get knocked over because it's it's like drinking from a fire hose. Yeah. So to bring it back full circle to podcasts like that literally is the best way to learn about. I mean, Bitcoin, anything crypto, yeah. which is why a lot of the mainstream media articles on these topics are just horrible because it's not people aren't, I mean, journalists included aren't accustomed to getting their data from a quote and a podcast. Right. Right. And it's like, then how, I mean, how do you cite that or whatever? It's, you know, I will say this, like a lot of people, when they first learn about Bitcoin, they like Google the white paper and they try to read it. I think that's a very terrible way to try and learn about Bitcoin for the first time. Mm. There's a really good article called The Bullish Case for Bitcoin, which anyone can Google and read it. I think it might also be like a longer series or a book that it was turned into one. That's a really good place to start. There's a, a guy out of Austin. His name is Parker Lewis. He works for a company called Unchained Capital. He has this series that is called his Gradually Then Suddenly series. It's terrific. He just did like a three-part series on the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is another really good podcast. I mean, it is information overload and it takes a lot of time. And it's not one of those things to that you can grasp at the beginning. I will say this, like, and I've said this on, on LinkedIn a couple of times, like this is what Parker says. So I'm basically quoting, paraphrasing him, like, People shouldn't try to like grok Bitcoin from the first time. They should just try to grok like what money is and why does this thing in my pocket have value and why am I using it to like to pay for things. Mm. And so if you start from like from there, just like from the most basic form, it's a lot easier to like begin to understand like what Bitcoin is than starting from like a technical um, yeah. perspective. And that's why like um, people from, you know, countries like Argentina and Venezuela and Turkey, like, and Nigeria have tend to, on a per capita basis, like, understand Bitcoin better than like some a lot of the people from first world countries. So perfect. No, I think that's a great way to sum it up. If people are interested to reach out to you, are you open to connecting on LinkedIn? Obviously, you are. But yeah, yeah, find me on LinkedIn, Patrick Nash. And just, I'll put your link in the show. notes. Yeah, just yeah. just do that. That's probably the best way if you don't have LinkedIn, Twitter as well. Perfect. What's your Twitter handle? I think it's at Pat underscore Nash. Okay. I'll find you. I'll put those links in the show notes too. Man, like I said, I had so many other questions, but I didn't realize that the depth at which you understand and are sort of, you know, diving into this Bitcoin world. And you said like committing your career. And then real quick, is that partially why you're getting your, because you're not, you're just about to start your MBA, which again, congratulations. I think that's huge. Yeah. Is that just to to kind of tie everything together and to, to, I mean, you know, speak so, on that. Yeah. So real quick, like there's a professor at, at A&M. His name's Kuro Ray. He's a director of the Maze. I think it's like Innovation Research Lab. Wow. He wants to basically build a, a Bitcoin research lab at Texas A&M. And so like a lot of a lot of universities are they're into like the blockchain stuff. But like Bitcoin is still sort of like more of a faux pas. And it actually is. It's sort of the opposite. Right. Like here's what I like to just say to people like you don't need to feel, you know, threatened by the soundest form of money that's ever been created. You just, you need to kind of like accept it 
and right. understand it. And so A and M is basically trying to build a Bitcoin research lab, and I want to help them build it. Good for um, you. Dude. So that's, that's why I'm going there. I love it, and I love folks like yourself who are thinking outside the box and early adopter. And, and if it sounds, it sounds like if, if something seems odd or there's a lot of you know. When people are zigging, you're zagging to figure out why and, and seek the opportunity. Because I think a lot of people, like you said, they go on the internet, they kind of get a little weary, but there's so much more beyond and to kind of learn and educate yourself beyond the noise is fascinating. And I think conversations like this, and I encourage you to reach out to a bunch of different podcasters and keep doing what you're doing on LinkedIn. <laughs> I think it's great. But anyways, with that said, we're going to do a round two so I can ask what 12 other questions I had for you, but I'm glad this happened because Bitcoin was very interesting. And with that said, for everyone out there, please support the show, like, review, obviously subscribe, share it with folks. And if you listen to this and it was really interesting, share it with someone else who might be interested in Bitcoin. Let, let's spread the good word and a big shout out to Patrick and his fan base. So hopefully he can gain some more, you know, gain some more followers and connections and, and you never know. And with that said, everyone always remember when the density's up and the gas is down, open the choke. Let's go to town. Thanks, everybody. Thanks again for listening. Tune in next week for another episode of Oil & Gas Onshore, a production of Oil & Gas Global Network. For more information, visit OGGN.com.